Welcome to The Next Journey, the adventure travel podcast with me, Andrew St. Pierre White. I'm a prisoner of Welcome everybody to The Next Journey. I have something very special today. Rob Barton. Hello, Rob. Hello, Andrew. <laughs> I'm pleased to be here. Those of you who know my show will know that I do some fairly, mm, some would regard them as adventurous expeditions into the unknown. Well, when I think about what Rob has done, actually those expeditions, my expeditions, pale into insignificance. Rob, what have you just done in a nutshell? Well, in a nutshell, I've just rode from Australia, uh, Carnarvon in Australia, to Tanga in, uh, in Tanzania. So, um, yeah, solo, unsupported, row across the ocean. So you basically have rowed single-handed, unsupported, across the Indian Ocean. That's right, yeah. How many days did that take you? Um, I was at sea for 86 days. A- a- 86 days? Yep. I look back on my longest expedition, 66 days, and I think to myself, by the end of it, I was close to dead. And I was in a comfortable car with an air conditioner. <laughs> so, so, Well, I was on the ocean with an air, with, you know, which is naturally air conditioned, because the ocean's a wonderful uh, leveler of temperature. So, you know, the sea temperature was a fairly consistent 24, 25 degrees. And the air temperature for pretty much the entire time I was out there was at that temperature. It was only when I was close to land that I was a bit cold. Um, so both on departure and arrival, I had to put a shirt on, but otherwise I didn't have to wear. That was the odd, the odd occasions where there was bad weather that I put a put a, a, a jacket on, but basically didn't okay. need to wear anything. Right. <laughs> Before we get to that, uh, this uh, podcast is sponsored by Egon. Egon, the producer of equipment for building your four-wheel drive, your camper, your trailer, and of course the heart of those builds, whether you're doing an electrical installation, the Egon DC hub will save hours, if not days of work, building your vehicle and uh, the Egon water hub likewise, with the plumbing, shower, fresh water systems. Systems that Rob didn't have in his canoe. <laughs> Sadly not. <laughs> yeah, no, I... I just... so, so tell, t- okay, how long did it take you? You told me, that, okay. Preparation. Mm. Okay, the the most important part about preparation, as far as I was concerned, is how on earth did you explain this to your children? Yeah, that was a challenge, actually. And I have to say, when I met up with my my, my daughter, picked me up from the airport on, on an arrival, and we were, we were chatting, and, and she, I, I didn't realise this. I mean, she was concerned about my departing initially. And, uh, and then when she said goodbye to me at Carnarvon, she told me later that she thought that that was a, a final goodbye and that she wouldn't be seeing me again. So she was pretty distraught saying goodbye to me in Carnarvon. Oh, wow, okay. um, I, I hadn't appreciated that she was that concerned. I thought I'd put her mind at rest because you know, I'd given her lots and lots of stories about other people that have done Ocean Rose. And you know, whilst there have been the odd loss, They've mostly been because people have fallen overboard and not been tethered to their boat. So they've basically, you know, the boat's gone sailing on and they've been left behind. So the boat's been found safe and well, but they haven't. So, so that was, you know, so I always made a point of being tethered, but, but that was um, quite a revelation to me that my daughter was quite so. To, to me, that's cold comfort. Mm. You know, because you've actually said, okay, here are the risk, and this is what has happened to other people. Yeah. Oh, Dad, what happens if you forget one morning or something happens and you... This, okay, so, so there must have been more to it than that, you, you, you know. 
I'm guessing. I, well, I think it's I think it's lack of it's it's the, it's the worry of the unknown. Now, I, for me, this was the first time in a rowing boat. I'd done very little rowing and was basically pretty inexperienced in that respect. But I'd done a lot of I've done a lot of sailing. So I'm comfortable on the water. So for me, it was never a, you know, I wouldn't have done it if I thought I wasn't going to come back. Yeah, I, I was I was very confident that I was going to make it. Um, and I was really, really surprised that, that Katie was so concerned and that she yeah, thought that I wasn't going to make it. So during your trip, mm. you must have had communications. I did, yes. With your, with your family. So yeah. what communications device, just sat phones or what, what was your... Yeah, I had, I had two sat phones. I had, two, I had the basic Iridium Go and then the Iridium Go Exec and, uh, and had great sponsorship from Pivotel on that. Okay. Um, so they gave me uh, airtime contracts for both devices. The Iridium Go was the, the basic one was fantastic but that, that was because I had an external aerial for that so I could use that pretty much at any time. The, the Go Exec was better insofar as it supported higher bandwidth. I could send back short videos and pictures but it was a brand new um, hardware only just been released. When I left there was no external aerial available. I believe it is available now. So I could only put that on deck to use when it was sort of fair weather and it was a bit of hassle. So I didn't use that as much as I would have liked. So I understand, and we're going we're gonna to skip forward um, for a moment, I understand that you've got some other plans for another expedition, which we'll get to towards yeah. the end. But I want dibs yeah. on, con- on, on connections with you because I want to watch those videos. Because I was actually, while you were away, mm. knowing that you were on there, I was kind of trying to picture this endless blue sea, these mountains, because mm. when you're sitting, am I right, when you're sitting on the water, the waves, even small ones, are, are completely blocking the the horizon well i mean the horizon comes and goes you're absolutely right yeah Yeah. so one minute you've got the most amazing view of the entire ocean sort of spread out before you and the next minute you've got a basically a wall of water in front of you yeah and on big big waves it's it's pretty daunting but but the boat i was on i mean i had huge confidence well i developed i didn't at the beginning but i developed a lot of confidence in it because you'd see this massive waves coming towards you and you'd be you know your heart would be in your mouth you'd be just well i'd be i was scared <laughs> but uh, there's no other way to put it um so i was i was pretty scared but then the boat would just rise up on these massive waves and you know gently come to the top of them and gently back down the other side describe the boat to me so the, the size and obviously i'm trying relative to the size of the waves yeah, and that kind of thing yeah, well to, compared to the size of the waves it it it, it it's yeah it's like a cork in a bath um you know with a child having a wonderful time splashing everywhere <laughs> uh, it, it yeah it's it's it, it i'm totally insignificant on the ocean you know to the point where big ships there were a couple of occasions where i had big ships that i, I could see on my on my uh, electronic systems and i you know radioed them up to make sure they'd seen me and, and they could see me on the other electronic systems but they couldn't see me physically um because you have so some small. kind of transponder on your bleeping out your your location like an aircraft transponder on your boat. That's exactly right. Yeah, okay. yeah. Because my big not biggest concern, but you know, one of the concerns always for a single-handed person is that you get run over. So because you you know you can't be on watch twenty-four by seven. Um, so you know so so. You, and even if you were on watch, you would obviously have flares with you to. Yeah. Yes, you, you would have so, that. And different types of flares. So you have white flares that you set off so people can see you, and red, and you know, and you have both parachute and handheld flares, okay. and then red flares for distress. Okay, we're, we're, we're going to get to that in a, in a minute. You're going to describe the boat to me, but you're also going to help me with 
you've got those flares are they next to you are they would you ever need them in an emergency oh i need the flare and i need it right now that um, kind of thing no no i don't think so but it's always hard to say but not, not in i didn't envisage any circumstances where i would need access to it that quickly right i did have a grab bag which had flares in it okay. so if if i had to get out of the boat you know in in seconds or minutes there was a bag that i had ready packed ready to go that had um, a variety of different types of flares in it as well as a little handheld water maker for desalination um, and um, yeah, a few other emergency bits of kit. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I'm very interested in that emergency bits of kit. Get yeah. back to the boat. Describe mm. the boat to me. So, so the boat uh, is just over 20 feet long. Uh, so it won't quite fit in a 20 foot container for okay. shipping, but yeah, so okay. just over 20 foot long. Yeah. It's got a cabin at the front, which, which uh, extends back underneath the rowing deck. So I can, so when I sleep, so, the, so in the middle of the boat basically is, is a, is a rowing deck, which is got, only just higher than the than the water outside so there's about a foot of you know, 12 inches 30 centimeters above the water level as, and as a result of that water frequently sweeps across the deck yes um, but yeah so you're sitting on the so you sit on that that rowing deck and then there's a very small aft cabin for storage at the, at the back of the boat um, but primarily it's the, it's the forward cabin that comes back underneath that rowing deck which is where I slept and kept the essential things that I needed to keep dry your location in the boat, are you kind of in the middle of the boat? For, for rowing, yes. For rowing, you're in, that makes yeah. sense to me that you're yeah. in the, because that would be your centre of gravity, as it were, centre of thrust or whatever you call it. Yeah, yeah. All right, and you're steering with your, steering with your feet? Um, no, so, there are, so the, there are steering lines that go back to, um, back to a, a, a tiller, effectively, connected to the rudder. Right. And those steering lines, they're, they're cleated. So you would make minor adjustments to them, and then and then basically you can adjust that steering again with your oars by rowing more on one side than the other. And, so uh, it's proper rowing boat rowing because that's how you row a rowing boat. You do more on one side than the other, and it'll turn. Yes. You, yeah. Not with your feet. So you have like yeah. a trim tab. Yes, effectively. Uh, yeah. On your on your rudder with, yes. with cleats. Yes. Yeah. Now I did have autopilot as well, but the uh, and I took multiple um, autopilot. Well. The, the, the mechanical bit of the autopilot, I took four rounds because I knew that they would fail. But when the, and the first one failed after 10 days, now knowing that this was, not knowing, but expecting mm. this to take 180 days, I, I didn't have spares to, for them to be failing after 10 days. So I stopped using the autopilot after 10 days and I did it entirely with manual steering until I got to Madagascar. And then I then I commissioned one of the spares at that point to go around the because going around Madagascar is quite hairy, so I wanted autopilot for that. Oh right, uh, uh, okay. So you're steering. So you say you have an autopilot. Mm. Is it linked to a GPS? Because you're obviously using GPS for your navigation. Yes. Yep. So your autopilot is then helping you. Is it telling you which way to steer or helping you steer? It, it steers completely for me. So I disconnect the steering lines. And it does, and, it, and I set the course up and say, I want you to steer, you know, due west or whatever it is. And, and that's what it does. You just pull and it steers. It, it's, that's and right. And it counteracts 
current uh, counteracts your current, your wind and everything that's affecting you? Uh, oh, it, it can do. So, I, but but so there's two two settings you can put the autopilot on. One is to track to a specific line that you've drawn across the map effectively, mm. and then it will, if there's current or wind taking you off, it'll bring you back on that line. But that is really heavy on on the actual motor that is driving the, the autopilot because uh. you get blown 100 meters off the line and it works to get you 100 meters back onto the line. So the, the more power effective way of using it, not, and power is a big issue for me, but the more power effective way of using it is to just give it a, a compass course to steer and accept that you'll drift from the line. Oh, and then correct and it then, the next day and, because you know you've yeah. <clears throat> you figured out, I have drifted this far over the last five hours, therefore that's my correction, and then you set it and, yeah. and you'll be making your way. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it's a little bit more of a, of a squiggle, but, but it's much less power hungry. Right. And, and it uh, and the and it lasts longer. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying that most of it you did uh, manually without all of this aid. I did. Yeah. So how did you do that? What was your what was your your daily routine of setting a compass heading and give me more information. So look, I mean, I did a lot of research before I left, and there were some significant variations in time. So there've been seven solo crossings of the Indian Ocean before. None of them to mainland Africa. I, I was the first to achieve that. Um, all of them had stopped at islands along the way. So Reunion, Madagascar, Mauritius, and the Seychelles were the four pre previous destinations. Right. And, but, but significant variances in time. Some of them had been as quick as under 60 days, I think, to get to Reunion was one person. But most of the times were sort of 100, 130 days. You know, so some significant times, which is why I thought I was going to take best part of six months. So the research I did, identifying all these variances, I went to see um, the oceanography team at UWA. Professor uh, Phil Watson gave me huge amounts of his time and assigned a PhD student and some undergraduates as well to do a whole load of research. So they, they looked at the weather as it has been, sorry, as it had been over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then they built a model that said, okay, let's put in the weather forecast as it's going to be for the next 10 days. Put that into the model with the weather as it had been for the prior 20 years and said, okay, based on where you are right now, we think you should take this course for the next 12 hours until you rerun the model. And we could have rerun the model multiple times wow, a day, okay. but we worked, you know, we, it's quite a slow boat. So once a day would, was sufficient for us. You say slow, mm. how, how slow? Well, I mean, the average speed that we did, I say, I keep saying we, because I always think of me and the boat. And, but and, still, you had a crew I, also back there helping you. So I had shore support, exactly yeah. right. So, yeah, so Neil is a, is a mate from Surf Club, and he, he kindly volunteered. <laughs> <laughs> but he was an incredible support. So, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he drove me up to the start line. He, we had text exchanges um, every single day, and we spoke every four or five days on the phone. So he was, he was amazing. But yeah, so he was running this data model for me. But the, to come back to the speed of the boat, about two, two and a half knots, I think was what I averaged from start to finish. But, you know, and the difference that I made in rowing, because you know, a big part of it is getting the boat in the right position. So, you know, just as a cork sits on the water and gets blown by the wind, so did the boat. So, you know, the boats without my rowing in normal sort of conditions would do about one and a half knots. And then with my rowing, we'd get about an extra knot, knot and a half. And if surfing down waves, so I could line it up to surf down a wave, then we could do much, much better. But um, yeah, sadly, those opportunities were not, not as many as I would have liked. But there were some great days surfing down waves. Yeah. How did you keep yourself occupied? Because this is incredibly 
yeah. very, very repetitive thing that you're doing. Mm. How do you keep your mind occupied? I, I actually found that really easy. I, I mean, I took no music. I took no audio books. No? No, none at all. No. <laughs> and, it, and it was a conscious decision not to. I mean, I'm not okay. big into music anyway, but okay. I, I normally I just love listening to the radio. That keeps me entertained. But I, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be, I wanted to experience the, you know, the nature side of it, if you like. And I just, lo- I, found, I find the ocean is really stimulating. It's, it's, it's consistently changing. You know, you think of the million, billions and billions of patterns that you could have, and there is, you know, it just doesn't repeat it's um, every time you look at it, there's waves of different angles coming from you at different places. And it, it just and it talks to you, you know, the noises of the ocean. It just, it, yeah, I just found it wonderful. I can in a way <clears throat> relate to it because when I go into the desert, if I'm camped at a desert, I don't listen to music and I don't listen to an audio book. I will just sit and listen to the desert. Yeah. And because you're not using your mind, that the whole thing is that you're actually your brain is starting to do different things. Mm. you start noticing things that you would never notice you hear things that you would never notice yeah and so i don't know if i could do that for 80 plus days but <laughs> yeah. th- that's amazing so yeah. <clears throat> at no time did you actually feel bored it doesn't sound like you did no no not at all no i i, there, I mean there was always well rowing was pretty much consistent but you know even outside of the rowing there was no end of jobs to do on the boat you know with running the water maker and keeping things clean and so let's, things up. So let's yeah. talk about jobs on the boat. You are now going to, uh, you're preparing for your night, for example. So let's take a 24-hour mm. period. You're preparing, the sun's going down. Okay, you know that, so did you, you obviously rode at night. Uh, what was your, your kind of uh, schedule of? Yeah, I, I, I did row at night occasionally and particularly towards the end when I had to get across certain currents. But up to getting to Madagascar, my night rowing was, you could probably measure in hours rather than days. It was, it was minimal. It was, there was no, you know, I, I, the whole point of this was to, you know, get the boat into the right weather systems to allow the, the wind and the currents to take me in the right direction. So I, I would typically row for nine to 10 hours during the day over a 12 to 14 hour period, you know, with, with breaks and doing other jobs during the day. But, but usually at night come sunset, um, or just prior to sunset, I would normally have a have a wash, get rid of all the salt water on me, and um, so you get rid of the salt water on you. But you only have salt water to wash with. Well, I had a water maker. I said well, I keep calling it a water maker. It doesn't actually make water. It takes the salt out of the seawater. Desalinate so it. Desalinate it. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah. But they're widely known as water makers. Uh, okay. <laughs> so then, your your other preparations for a night's mm. sleep, because during the night you're just going to bob and float in the ocean and then yep. wake up and say oh yep. where have i got to now if, is that how it works yeah effectively so I'd, i mean i'd spend a, i would spend probably a good 30 minutes playing with the, the 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 tiller lines the steering lines trying to trim the boat so that wherever the wind was coming from it was you know optimizing the going to give me the best course <clears throat> and sometimes i'd have to get up in the night and retrim the tiller lines because you know, if the wind changed either in its intensity or in its direction, then I might suddenly find myself going in a different direction. So the tiller lines were the, you know, the most important thing to get right. It's, once inside the boat, and you couldn't go in there very much during the day because it was just too hot. Mm. But at, at night time you get in, it's still, it was still hot. So I would typically sit by the hatch and have my hand on the hatch, um, ready to close it at a moment's notice because... You know, you get hit by a wave and water just comes straight in the boat. So wet bedding was pretty common. So yeah, so, to, so for my night routine, it would be 
yeah, have a wash, dry off as much as I could outside, depending on how rough it was, and then uh, yeah, get down below and um, eat something. Sometimes I'd eat on deck whilst rowing, but uh, I say sometimes, mostly actually, I'd, I'd eat on deck before whilst rowing, and then I'd go down below and and uh, spend an hour or so by the hatch with a trying to keep it cool yeah, and yeah. trying to dry off in, yeah. in the air then yeah. I'd shut the hatch and spend an hour or so writing my journal which yeah. I'd send back via satcoms okay. to get published on my Facebook page Fantastic. and then I'd get to sleep rewind us a little bit mm. the effect of the wind this is not a sailing boat no it's a rowing boat yep. so you're saying that you can trim out the rowing boat mm. so the wind has optimal effects but it's yeah but there's no how there's no is there directional stability like there is in a sailboat so as long as the wind is is aft of the beam so that means if your boat is heading due west which would have been nice um, and the wind is coming uh, from well if it's coming from the east that's great but but that happened rarely most most of the wind I had was from you know right angles to the boat and that put me into a position where the seas were coming at me from well say from right angles so beam seas beam wind well I suffered really badly from seasickness early on and that's just because the motion of the boat was horrible because on a normal sailing boat you as you say you get that up and down motion on a rowing boat you get the up and down as well as this horrible sideways wiggling where you're sitting there and you're, you're literally rocking from side to side so that wasn't comfortable so, so as long as the wind was after the beam, there is a, there's a bit of windage on the boat. You know, it's like if you chuck a plastic bottle in the in the sea. You know, if there's wind, it blows. If there if there isn't, it'll stay where it is and just drift with current. Yes. The, there's these rowing boats. They sit on top of the water. There's very little underneath them. They're flat bottomed. So as long as there is a little bit of wind, they will. You know, it's very slow. You know, one and a half knots is not exactly moving. Um, well, it's a per, it's a percentage of your forward speed. So one and a half is. knots is actually. I mean, it could be fifty percent of your overall. Speed. Speed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I hadn't rowed, I mean, I, I did do a bit of maths on this, and you know, I reckon that my rowing probably contributed maybe 15 miles a day. So if I was only rowing for 86 days, that's that's what you know, so 12, 1300 miles, and it was a close to a 5,000 mile crossing. So the wind blew me the other three and a half. My job was really to make sure that the boat was in the right place to right. take advantage of the right. the wind that was blowing me. Yeah. Okay. You know, head north or south to get into the right wind system that's coming, that's going to blow me west. Okay. Yeah. So it is a sailing boat. In um, a way, it's a sailing in, boat. In, in a way, it is, yeah. 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 Uh, although we're not allowed any sails. <laughs> no, I understand. So it's that. just no, the windage no. of the boat, yes. Yeah. 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 But if you put a sailing boat on the ocean and take all the sails down, it still gets blown along. Even a motorboat, you know, any boat on the ocean yeah. will, get, will get blown along, just slower than if it's got sails. Yeah. Your seasickness. How long did uh, how long did your seasickness last? I, I mean, to the point that I was throwing up. It was the first few days, um, and I and I still don't know today how much I was affected by gas poisoning. In fact, this might be something very relevant to your your normal audience. I used a, a jet boil, which is a great camping stove. But you know, it's propane or butane? Uh, I think it's butane. Yeah, it's poisonous stuff. It, and it leaks. Oh, okay. So, so I took a jet boil. I had ten four hundred gram gas cylinders, and I had them stowed in my sleeping compartment, which was a big mistake. And after the first one ran out through use, um, I went to get another one and found three of them completely empty, and they'd leaked into my sleeping compartment. Now, that's very. 
Never seen that before. These are the small canisters. Small canisters. You buy on the uh, yeah. camping stores. Yeah, yeah. got them all from Anaconda, and um, yeah, all all. So three of them are empty. So at that point, I'm, I moved the remaining seven of them into the aft cabin, uh, which is just for storage only. And then when I went to get another spare one from, the, in fact, it wasn't until I got to to Tanzania that I that I went and checked them again, and I found another. I think it was two or three had also fully emptied, completely empty. I don't know whether I just got a bad batch or whether or not they don't like the movement on the ocean or, or what it was, but it for them to have leaked, I was I was really disappointed. And you know, and it could have been it could have been a whole lot worse. I mean, you know, three of them to uh, it, leak. It in could the have ended your trip. It it, it could butanes are really quite toxic. It, I mean, propane yeah. is actually okay to to use in a, in, a, in a as far as I know to use in a confined space even inside, but butane or butane propane mix is not. So, so you you had you had a butane probably butane propane mix in your cabin. You were breathing it in. But that's that's right. So, how much gas poisoning probably, I suffered from, I don't know. But it, it's probably more toxic when it's burnt than it is coming straight out. I'm guessing. I don't know. I'm not a. Yeah. I'm not qualified to say, but I'm making that suggestion. But that could have ended your trip. That that sounds. It, it could, and you know, and if I if I had, I mean, I didn't use them in inside at all. I only used them on. I know that's not true. I did towards the end. I think in bad weather, I used it once inside. But mostly, I I used them outside. But had I tried to light it inside the cabin, ooh, I mean, that could have just well, I yeah, boat gone, me gone. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> it would have been, been really really it, catastrophic. It would. So you know, so the message I guess is, if anyone's using these things, is just don't keep the gas containers in your anywhere where you're well, sleeping. Well, I do, and I have for years. Make sure it's in a ventilated space, I guess. Because obviously a, a, yeah. a, a propane tank in a caravan or something like that has to be stored outside for exactly that reason. If yeah. there's a leak, but those small ones, yeah. first time I've heard of them leaking. So yeah. it's an, I'll do some investigations, actually. That's, really, I, I that's was, really interesting. Yeah, I was shocked. Yeah. yeah. So how did you then deal with your lack of fuel? Well, I'd, I'd budgeted for um, 180 days. And I finished in '86, oh, okay, so I was okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. And also, I packed a couple of spares as well. Right. And I'd also allowed for three hot meals a day, and I only ended up having two. Yeah. Tell me about the food that you were preparing for yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> obviously, no fridge and no cold beer. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the the food I had initially, I was really, I really struggled with it because I was I was seasick, and then I was eating food forcing it down basically and when you force food down when you're sick it just tastes horrible and it continued to taste horrible for quite a long time but but towards the end I actually really started enjoying it um, so it's all dehydrated food little 140 gram packs add less slightly less are they, are they are they dehydrated or freeze-dried uh, dehydrated um, all, all from Radix Nutrition okay um, 800 calories per pack okay um, and I was eating three of those a day so so breakfast was just add cold water to them there was quite a nice mix of, of um, yeah the breakfast was good actually okay and then the evening meals or the lunchtime add, add boiling water leave it for five minutes and eat it straight out of the pack so no washing up just a spoon I imagine washing up is also quite easy just lean just lean lean over the side of the boat yeah in the current wish it around a bit and yeah 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 basically yeah so that's that's what i did i mean the, the one issue with salt water of course is your, your stainless steel spoons rust horribly so i mean if you're using them every day they don't okay. but if you have a spare that you put in a which i did okay and when you come to find the spare it's yeah you've got to 
get a scour out and get all the rust off it. But yeah, there's no such thing as stainless steel, I've discovered. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I know. Even stainless steel, only the very, very highest grade stainless steels yeah. uh, can withstand salt water for very, for very long. Yeah. So your, 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 your food was very repetitive or did you actually have quite a nice um, um, variation? So of every, so I only had two options of breakfast, so that changed every other day. Okay. Um, and the, the other meals, I had six different varieties. So every three days I had the okay. same thing, but it was okay. I, I did you like, count your calories? Did you, were yeah. you kind of quite sci- scientific about it? I, I was. So before I left, well, the, the first thing I did before I left was put on weight. So I bulked up, I put on, um, my normal weight's around 75 kilos, I got up to 98, and then I, and now I'm back down to 80. So I lost, you know, best part of 18 kilos on the journey. Okay. Um, over three months. That'll be the title of my new book. <laughs> <laughs> How to lose 18 kilos in, one in three very, months. <laughs> in one very, very difficult way. Yeah. No, I was gonna miss that bit, I wanted to okay. sell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, anyway. Um, so yeah, so so that you know that was a that was a big source of energy for me was just burning off my my own fat. But then I yeah I did so I did a whole meal plan before I left, which was aiming at about five and a half thousand calories a day. But I never ate more than four thousand because I just I just struggled to eat that much. So as well as the dried food that I had, um, I also had um, I took lots of nuts, fruit cake, and <coughs> chocolate. Yeah. Right. Okay. And water. You did you measure your water consumption? Because I I know you. I've known you for yeah. several years. Yeah. When you walked in for the interview, you you are well tanned, and as much as you say, well, the weather wasn't too bad, mm. it wasn't probably very kind on you. Water intake must have been really critical for you to get right. Look, I mean, the the, the thing with 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 rowing for ten hours a day is. You're rowing at a, I mean, the easiest way to compare it is at a walking pace. You're not going, I mean, the middle of the day is, sure, you're, you're you know, sweating a bit, for, but mostly you're just, you know, you're rowing at a relatively sedate pace. Um, so you're not, you're not s- s- profusely sweating as you would do if it was a, you know, one hour sprint or something. Mm. So, you know, water, yes, I did measure it because I, I had to measure it every day for how, you know, I was filling up a specific number of water bottles every day. So I knew what I was consuming. Right. And, you know, generally I was getting through, I was drinking about three and a half litres a day, occasionally more if it was a really hot day, but but that was about the average. And then I was, um, I allowed myself one and a half to two litres a day for washing. That was my shower. <laughs> so you, you, you were obviously very organised and, and you'd planned very, very well and you knew what you were up against and... But the other part that you probably couldn't plan for, and it's also one of the reasons why you actually did the trip, mm. how do you control yourself mentally, your mental health? Yeah. To me, the physical part is one side, the, 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 the mental part is probably tougher. Certainly with me, it would probably be tougher. Mm. How was that with you? I, I've, I'm generally, I'm pretty good on my own. You know, I, I've, I've got lots of kids, I love being around them. But, you know, equally, I'm... But, you, but, company, but, but so one, of your, one of your motivations for doing it was to support a mental health charity. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so a couple of years ago, my, one of my daughters had some, uh, some, some mental health challenges, I guess is probably a good way to put it. Mm. You know, and she's, she's in a much better place today, I'm pleased to say, a couple of years on. But at, but at the time, two years ago, it was, it was fairly traumatic. And coming through that experience, I mean, I, I have to say I was... I was not a very nice person when it came to looking at mental health issues. You know, prior to this incident, I was not at all understanding 
had very little empathy. You know, I came from the, you know, despite the fact that I'd lost a grandmother to mental health issues, who I never knew, that was prior to me being born. And my other grandmother also had mental health, but it wasn't talked about. It was, you know, so yeah, so I, you know, I came from a family that was very much a case of, you know, pull yourself together and get on with life. And, uh, and I was, you know, having grown up with that attitude, that's how I was. I, I had really no, no empathy at all. Yet I just didn't get it. And then for my daughter to go through this experience, I've learned a lot in the last two and a half years. And, and yeah, and I'm pleased to say I'm a little bit more empathetic today. Um, and I have a much better understanding. And, uh, and anyway, going through this, through this experience with my daughter, I came across Zero to Heroes quite by chance. A friend of mine went to work for them. Um, and told me all about them and what they were doing. And, and Zero Tier is, a, is an amazing mental health charity. Their focus is, is entirely around prevention rather than cure. Well, there is no cure in many cases. No. Um, so, so um, you know, they run educational programs for youth and adolescents. They run camps. Um, they go into schools. You know, so there's a huge amount of work that they do. So, so when I came across them, I thought, right, well, I'll, I'm going to do this to raise money for them. And so far, we're up to pretty close to $120,000. Because I, ha- I have three yeah. daughters. We had some mm. challenges. The details are not important, but I can empathize with what you went through. Mm. I can understand that. And for me, I, I was kind of numbed by it. Yeah. yeah. And you have to rely on professionals. And sometimes relying on those professionals is a difficult thing to do. Yes. And so, yeah. but you, you took, obviously took it one step further and you said, okay, I'm going to do this great thing, but I need to actually give back. Yeah, look, I have to say, I'd actually planned to do this before any 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 yes. any, any signs were just, and yeah. I was going to do it for a, for a different charity, but you know that that changed obviously. Okay. And 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 I, look, I think one other thing I'd just add to that is, you know, when I started this row, I was I was a couple of days into it, and I started this row really for back to selfish reasons. <laughs> you know, I wanted a personal adventure. I wanted to go out and and do something for me. You know, my been rearing children for 30 years yes. it was uh, just all but just about all grown up I thought it was about time I had some fun so so this was something for me that I was doing it wasn't for anybody else and then a couple of days into it I was feeling so ill um, and uh, I was over it and I actually turned around and started rowing back and a couple of hours into rowing back I um, you know had time to think and realized that actually I wasn't really, whilst I might be over my own personal adventure, it was bigger than me. You know, I was doing this as well to raise money for mm-hmm. charity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a key thing is if you can, whatever you do, if you can find something that is bigger than you, there's a good chance you'll see it through. Whereas when you're just doing it for yourself, you just, it's too easy to give in. So, you know, so it was great having that extra motivation and, and reason for doing it. And so, um, yes, yeah, so I turned around again and carried on. <laughs> Somehow I can completely, those of you who know me will know, I did a trip in 2008 and I was, was my first big solo expedition. And I was going to drive across the Kalahari and I did it. And I was confronted on, I think, the third night in the wilderness. I was parked next to my vehicle, doors open, laptop starting to do my story for my magazine and the lion roared. But the lion wasn't, you know, normally when you hear a lion roar, it's, oh, some lions in the distance. No, he was there. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it was this, my blood ran cold. Yeah. And yeah. I, I kind of had to stop myself. And, and I, the first thing I did was actually I leaned over and I, and, I, and I pressed the record button on my camera because I thought if it eats me, if it attacks me, at least there'll be a record. <laughs> Honestly, that was my, wow. because my end goal was, yeah 
this selfish reason yeah. to cross the Kalahari because I wanted to feel, and I didn't take any sat phones, no personal locator beacons, nothing. Right. Because I wanted to feel that, that experience of being utterly alone mm. without possible help from anybody else. And I wanted to experience that, and I did. But the following day, I had some tire failures, and I actually thought to myself at the time, stop mm. right now. Stop what you're doing. Set up camp. I drove. I saw on the map that there was a clearing and 12Ks on, drove, set up camp, and sat. And literally sat. Yeah. What am I going to do? What is the smart thing to do? What is the, who, is going to, who am I letting down? Yeah. Who, you know, but is this too risky now? Mm. So there was all that kind of thing. And I realized, actually, the chances of me succeeding this trip are very low because the tires had failed. The lion had scared me, but when the tires failed, it was you saying, I have no more gas. They've all leaked. Mm. I can't cook a meal. I can't prepare the meals. I can't eat dried meal, meals. I, have to, I need some way of, okay, do I carry on? No, it's crazy to carry on. Yeah. But yeah. that end goal was to do it, do it for the magazine, do it for me. And so the next year I got in and did the exact same trip again, but this time prepared properly and it was a huge success yeah. and one of the most enjoyable experiences. Right. So that was that extra thing that, so that's my story. I mean, you, you know, it's yeah. not crossing an ocean over 80 days. That trip, I think, was a total of 14 days. So it's, right, it's okay. you know, yeah. but I, I can, I can empathize with that, needing that reason. Yeah, yeah. Beyond just you. Yeah. There was another. There was another reason for yeah. it. Yeah. 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 It, it makes it easier, actually. I think when it's because it's so easy to give in on your own, isn't it? It's like it's so you know, easy. It's so easy. No end of examples. I'm sure that I could come up with times where I've just thought, oh no, <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. And that's the but time when uh, that happens. Mm. That's the time where you s just say, stop. Stop yeah. everything. Yeah. Camp, yeah. rest, let your mind mm. settle down. Okay, yeah. now we're going to think about this logically. And then the motivations of why you're doing it come back. Yes. And yeah. give you a nudge in the right direction. And the other part of it is saying, well, you can actually do this. You, you, there's nothing stopping you doing this. And if there is something stopping you, it's a physical thing that is putting your life in danger. Mm. If that's the case, then it's wise to stop. Yes. Yeah, quite. But if it's yeah. just your own little, yeah. oh, you know, mental thing, then... I, I've got a, a friend who's, whose wife is completely agoraphobic. For her, getting out of the house and going doing the shopping is a major, major challenge for her. And if she was only cooking for herself, she would probably die of starvation. But the fact that she has to get up and, mm. you know, support her family mm. and do it, you know, she, she does it. She gets out. Mm. And so it's, again, it's back to that external motivation, if you like. It's finding a reason that's bigger than you. And for her, it's supporting her family. Her family. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when, you, when you were coming towards the end, you, had, mm. you'd, you'd, you went around Madagascar because you said you landed in Tanzania? In Tanzania, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that last couple of days, you must have seen, you must have seen the finishing line. How did that change you mentally? So I didn't actually see Madagascar. So I, I, I came up along the coast of it. So I, I um, so Il Rafael was 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 a, the first struggle to get round the southern point of that group of islands. I wanted to, I, I was sort of set that as my first target, if you like. And I was on sea anchor for a while, waiting for the right weather to get round it. Eventually got got wind from the right direction, managed to get around it, and then and then going up along along Madagascar, there was a lot of hype about 
Madagascar, which I think a lot of this is fully justified, but, but there's a compression zone around the northern tip of it where, where currents coming up from the Arctic and, and winds as well compress going around that northern tip. Very strong currents, three, four knot currents, um, big winds, big waves, big swell, and, and it sweeps around the corner. And, and if you're in the right part of the current, it will take you, it, it, it then moves from that sort of northerly to, to westerly direction. But I got into the wrong part of the current and ended up going too far north. Um, and then the current splits with part of the current going northwest and part of it going north to Somalia. And the prior year, there was a, a rower who ended up in Somalia. And he was... He, Oops, uh, yes, not, not, not an ideal place to be. <laughs> he had a really tough time. And, and he, I didn't realise this, but he was actually monitoring my progress on, on my Facebook page. And he got in touch with, uh, with Neil, my shore manager, and was very concerned that I was going to end up going the same way. So he was sort of, you know giving us lots of encouragement to make sure we got got as west as we possibly could without getting into that northerly current and and you can see from um there's a, a predict wind and and windy you've got these systems where you can actually look with infrared they've got infrared cameras and they they show you where the currents are so you can put your your boat position um in what program is that because i've got windy on my <clears throat> on my flying apps Right. Is this also for currents? You yes. A similar thing for currents? Yep. yep. Okay. Yep. So you can have a look at that and see exactly where. What's it called? Uh, well, it's just in just one of the extra tabs in the Windy app. Oh, okay. I didn't know yeah. that. All yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah, so you can see where, where the currents, what the currents are doing um, and where you are in relation to them. So I was within a couple of miles of go, being in the wrong current, going the wrong way, <laughs> um, but managed to get into the, into the west and uh, northwest current. But it was still a challenge to what well, I was aiming for Dar es Salaam that was my original destination point and I and I missed that um, because I couldn't get west enough and the current was took took me north so Tanga was the next logical place I went down the uh, the east side of Zanzibar and that was the first land that I saw which was exciting but nowhere near as exciting as seeing Tanzania which was my final destination Right. And, and that was again was another a close call because I went I went round Zanzibar. Um, I was pretty about halfway to Tanzania to the Tanzania coast, um, and the wind changed, came in from the west, uh, and there was no way I was going to be able to make that make that uh, coast with the wind from that direction. So it's, it's uh, the wind is straight into your face. Yes. Yeah. Right. And and the current was taking me north, so so I would have ended up with a wind blowing me offshore, and the current taking me north. So Somalia was looking very likely at that oh, point. Okay. So I turned around, um, and I went back to I couldn't I wasn't able to make Zanzibar itself, um, but just to the north of Zanzibar there are some shoals, so I went to those shoals, anchored up, and 24 hours later, uh, wind was more in my favour. And I made the dash across that 25-mile stretch of water to um, to Tanzania, anchored up overnight, seeing land. Um, <laughs> you know, you're really low on the water, so mm. you don't see land until you're within 10, 15 miles of, of the land. So, mm. but the sun that night, the sun set behind the mountains, and it's quite volcanic and some wonderful sort of skyline that you see as you approach Tanzania, mm. and the sun set behind the behind the mountains and. And just seeing that, 
I was whooping for joy. It was really great. <laughs> it was really great. And then I, I got into that anchorage late at night in the dark. That was what you were talking about earlier, about the fact that you did some rowing at night, and that was then when you had to make up that time and not to be blown off course. That, well, that night for sure. But prior to that, the, the getting to Zanzibar bit was, was there's a 54-hour stretch that I rowed for 50 hours of getting t- just to the northern tip of Zanzibar wow. so that was pretty full-on and I yeah yeah I ended up with you know chafing sores on my bum and yeah I was, I was in a bit of a mess <laughs> so again that's yeah. that the end goal motivating you and that end goal for a moment was mm. Somalia and you were thinking I don't want to that is that. not happening <laughs> yeah and you <laughs> that is called motivation yeah yeah, yeah very much so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and and also there you know there were people so so Neil was on shore he'd already been at um, Dar es Salaam to meet me and I didn't make it to there so he'd gone to Tanga um, and the yacht club and you know there was a reception party there to yeah, meet me fantastic. so yeah it was great it was great there's a whole load of yachts came out and but anyway so just a lot of yachts came out three three yachts so three yacht there were three yachts that left I, I wasn't aware of this until I got there but there were three yachts that <laughs> left from uh, Carnarvon a, a few days after I left and they obviously got there way before me they'd been to different islands along the way and different ports and they'd had yeah, a long time to get acclimatised and, and so on so they'd been there for a while but they, they were told of my departure by I think uh, Border Force let them know okay. that I'd left yeah, yeah. and said you know keep an eye out for him on the way Okay. <laughs> and um, and uh, so, they, so they were looking out for me I think they were even following me on my Facebook page so they you know they saw my slow snail-like progress <laughs> compared to theirs and uh, yeah so they were interested to come out and and see who this idiot was on a rowing boat it's <laughs> yeah. extraordinary so uh, that was the question but you've kind of answered it for me arriving in Tanzania you'd obviously made a forward arrangements for passport clearance and things like that but so that so they it wasn't a whole lot of policemen on the beach suddenly seeing this crazy person arriving out of nowhere yes. and sending you back because you didn't have the right paperwork. Yes, I, well I actually checked on that before departing and you don't, whilst if you go to, if you land at an airport in Tanzania you have to have a visa but if you arrive by sea it's visa on arrival so they, they gave me a visa on arrival Okay. and, and they did, they didn't met me on the beach, Department of Immigration and Department of they, Health they were, did. were both on the beach to, really? to, to meet me, yeah. yeah, yeah, which was great, you know, yeah. came on board, inspected exactly. the boat, made sure yeah. it was healthy. Yeah, <laughs> Very right, quick. of course, yes, they would do that, yeah. they would want to do that. Yeah. And then wouldn't leave until I took down my Q flag, so you, have, you know, your quarantine flag, which was quite amusing. So explain the quarantine flag. So, so when you arrive in a new port, a, a, a yachts are supposed to fly a, a yellow flag, which is a Q flag, which is, indicates that you need, cust- and you need uh, health clearance. Gotcha. Um, for quarantine, basically. Right. Look, in most countries, it's a formality. They just come down and clear you. But in, in Tanzania, they they come down and they inspect the boat and then they won't leave until you actually take the flag down. <laughs> okay. So, which is a bit of fun, really. Okay. Yeah. All right. I thought it was quite amusing. Wow, that is an extraordinary story. How long so, before you actually set off from Carnarvon did you get the idea? Oh, a few years, a few years. So I, so I originally got the idea. I mean, I was looking for some ocean-based challenge, but I come from a sailing family. So, you know, my dad and my mum and dad had sailed around the world. They spent 13 odd years doing that. My grandpa had sailed across the Atlantic for 20 years, backwards and forwards every year. And so trying to find something, you know, some hadn't already been done was quite a challenge. And I, and I, I was on YouTube one day, as you, as you are. 
and uh, and I stumbled down this this rabbit hole and came across a young lady, Sarah Ooten, who uh, at the age of 24 rode from Fremantle to Mauritius. So she was first first lady to do it. I think the youngest person to do it as well. And uh, and I and she wrote wrote a book. So I you know, I bought her book and read that and and was suitably inspired and thought, yep, that's what I want to do. But but when I started researching it, I found that nobody had been all the way to Africa. So I thought, well, if I'm going to row to Mauritius, I might as well go that little bit further and yeah. row to Africa and be the first person to do non-stop to Africa. To Africa. Yep. And unsupported, when, when somebody regards themselves as supported, what mm. does that actually mean? It means that they're driving, they're rowing with another vessel yeah. what is what is the definition of unsupported so so yeah another, another so so for example i was offered support when i got to um il rafael i was woken up early in the morning by the uh, by the mauritian coast guard who uh, who who came up to see me and, and they offered me but at that time i'd been at sea for 50 odd days or 50 56 58 i can't remember but anyway a while and uh, and they offered me fresh food they said oh you've been at sea so long would you like some fresh food and I had to decline because to accept would have been accepting support. So basically it means that would have been very minor support, but generally supported would mean another yacht escorting you or... or um, yeah. It means so true that. self-sufficiency. You yes. carry everything you're going to need for the trip from beginning to end, and that's and that's it. Yes. And sh- but but shore support is doesn't really qualify because no. that's the same as you looking at the weather on your chart on your plotter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that 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 doesn't qualify. Yeah. No, so, no. And, and you, right. I, mean, I could have done that, and but it was great having you know the, the support that I got from UWA using their data model, for example. That that doesn't count as support, no, but it's. But it was, but it did make yeah. a massive difference. Yeah. Wrapping this up now, mm. give me the moment that you were the most scared, where your heart lumped and jumped into your into your mouth. Tell tell me about that. It, probably the first time I capsized. Probably about, so. I was. I was um, so, so so you capsized more than once. Yes. Yeah. I capsized okay. three three times. Twice whilst I was rowing, and once whilst I was asleep in bed. Okay. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> so, so they weren't complete three sixty degree rolls. They were one hundred and eighty degrees. So that the first time I was thrown into the water, and the boat was upside down, and I was sort of looking up at it, thinking, "Is it going to keep rolling and roll on top of me?" Um, was that the scare? Actually, I, I, that probably wasn't the scariest because that just happened. I didn't have time to get scared. Probably the scariest moment was seeing great walls of water coming towards me and thinking, "This is going to be." the end um, because the yes. boat would break or bro- broach or what was because the, when you get those huge waves that are breaking if they if they break on top of the boat on top of you it just it just hurts i mean yes there's a chance of breaking the boat swamping it but it just you know if you're on the on the boat and the waves breaking on top of you i mean anyone who's been surfing who's been dumped on the beach will empathize with you know the power of, of a breaking oh. wave mm-hmm. And these waves are just huge. But apart from the times that I was capsized, on, and then there were lots of breaking waves over the boat, but mostly they break before they get to the boat or they break just as you go past the wave, just after it or just in front. So to get that combination where it actually is breaking right on you is, it was quite unusual. But the fear of it happening when you see this wall of water coming towards you. You have time to be scared. You have time, that's right, you have time to be scared, yeah. Whereas when it actually happens, it's, you know, it's, oh, it's not actually that bad. It was bad, but it's not as bad as your fear of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, because when something like that happens and it's a bit of a surprise, you just act on it and deal with it because you've got to get the yeah. boat righted and you've got to get back into the boat. Mm. And afterwards, it was like the the lion thing that I was... Yeah. Know, it gave me a fright, but I wasn't scared. Yes. Afterwards, when yeah. I had settled down, I mm. could hear the lion actually, he'd moved off a little bit and he was calling, but he wasn't hungry. He wasn't looking for me. He was looking for his mates. He was right. calling to the pride. Yeah. And so I knew that. So I knew I wasn't in danger, but that moment of, of, uh, mm. of, of terror, yeah. which you wouldn't have experienced, that's probably the equivalent of, oh, crikey, this thing is going to hit me any second. Mm. Uh, okay. And then afterwards you calm down, yeah. you kind of relax and your, your heart's doing this. Yep. And then you realize, yeah. bugger, that was, that was really, really yeah. horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, I could have avoided a lot of those um, capsizes. It just would have been a longer trip. If you're going st- straight down a wave, and, that, and to do that, you just have to go you know, with the weather, put out a drogue to slow yourself down or put out a, a drogue to keep the boat at the right angle. Right. But then you're not necessarily going in the right direction. So you have to weigh up the, the risk of, you know, of capsize against, against the progress, the forward progress that you want to make in the right direction. So, you know, for me, mostly it was a case of accept the risk, row in the direction you want to go, and if you get the odd capsize, so be it. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. Now tell me, what now? Because obviously this is like you've sown a seed. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I can yeah. imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got some ideas? I do, I do. I've got quite a few ideas. So, so I've been doing some some um, research. So, 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 rowing, I don't think I want to do anymore. I think I've kind of put that to bed. But, I, but the ocean still calls, and yeah. uh, and I'd like to do to get back into sailing. I've, I've, you know, in my youth, I did a lot more sailing. So, I'd like to get back into sailing. I'm looking at the moment at um, at foiling six and a half meter boats, which are pretty hairy. Um, but I quite like the idea of there's there's a, an existing world record time for sailing around Australia. Um, I'd quite like to have a crack at beating that in one of these foiling boats. Foiling boat is, if I'm, if I'm correct, it's a hard, it's a single hull, mono hull, but it doesn't have sails. It has aerofoils. Oh, no, no. Am I correct? No, sorry. No, it does have sails. It has huge amounts of sails, so yes. lots of canvas, but it's like a hydrofoil. So the foils... Oh, for, oh is that what you mean? Right. Yeah, okay, I understand. Yeah. So these foils, so you, so the boat lifts up out of the water and sits on these foils and, and it is capable of some pretty incredible speed. So you're doing 15, 20 knots. And very often, and they've got great upwind performance as well. So I think round Australia would be a good one to start with, and then I'd like to go back across the ocean. But I think you know it's back to uh, back to Africa in the same boat and, and establish a record because that's never been done non-stop in a foiling boat. And there's no established record in the northern route either. There's a there's an established record from Cape to Cape, so from southern tip of Africa to Cape Lewin, I think it is. There's an established record for that. All right. Um, so I might come back that way. But I don't know if a six and a half meter boat is capable in those southern oceans. I think it's uh, might be a bit too high risk. Okay, so I uh, I call dibs on the first interview when you when you finish that one. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yep. Uh, Rob, thanks uh, yeah. very very much for your time with me this morning. It's an incredible adventure, Thank and you. I, Thank I you. know Rob from you know, from financial services that Rob has supplied to me and my family, and when he came up with the with the with the concept. You walked in and said, oh, I'll be off. I won't be in touch for two or three months. I'll be away from home. Where are you going? You know, expecting, oh, I'm just going for a you know, sabbatical in Europe or something. No, I'm rowing across the Indian Ocean. So and I was, what? <laughs> <laughs>
So, so, so yeah. that again, did I hear you? Did I hear you correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant, really brilliant. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. It's been fun. Yeah, fantastic. Well, good luck. Hope you get that next next uh, the next journey. Well, if there's any uh, anyone th- anyone out there thinking of uh, of or interested in sponsorship, then yeah. then yeah, please touch base because yeah. that's that's going to be yeah. the key thing is getting the right level of funding okay. to do it. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. Right. So those of you who are interested in doing that, you'll see contact details, more details about Rob's trip, Rob's Facebook page, links to them, links to me. If you want to contact Rob through me, that's also fine. I can always through my website on YouTube, all of the um, the details and links are are uh, linked to that. Um, Fantastic. Link to that page. Thank okay. you very much. Yeah. Thank, no, thank thanks, you. Thanks. And thanks for the opportunity. It's okay. been great. Come that was brilliant. Fantastic story. Fantastic story. We, we need to go and have a beer and talk about other stuff because I'm just now so intrigued by this this adventure you've just been on. Great. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to know more information about Rob and his exploits and the Next Journey podcast, visit thenextjourney.net. My name is Andrew St. Pierre White. See you next time.